Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. We all still think, we may disagree on politics, but we think of ourselves as, like, as, an, as an American nation. And of course, they didn't. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Michael Sassir discussing his new book, United for Independence, The American Revolution in the Middle Colonies, 1775 to 1776. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Michael Sassir, and he's discussing his new book, United for Independence, The American Revolution in the Middle Colonies, 1775-1776. Michael Sassir is one of the uh, really great contributors we have at the Journal of the American Revolution, who's been taking readers through a... uh, a brisk study of the American Revolution, its origins, its politics, in a sectional basis across the United States. He began his book series with uh, a manuscript focusing on the American Revolution in the South, and his new book on the Middle Colonies is an outstanding follow-up. As he reveals in the article, he'll have a third book coming out in the near future on the New England colonies. Taken together, Michael Sassir is going to give us a whirlwind tour of really what's going on in the year 1775 and 1776, those ever-important formative years of the Revolution. And taken all together, it makes for a wonderful perspective on a very difficult and ever-changing situation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Michael Sassir. Mike Sassir, welcome back. Thanks, Brady. I'm happy to be here. Mike, you've been on the program before. Remind us about your background. Well, I am a retired American history teacher, two years into retirement after 30 years in the classroom. And I live in in Williamsburg, and I volunteered a little bit over at Colonial Williamsburg, and here in Virginia, I should say, Colonial I mean, Williamsburg, Virginia. And I'm absolutely loving life here in this beautiful town. I'm working with great people. Sometimes I do a little evening program, some colonial dancing. I've been reenacting for 25 years, and I've been writing on the revolution for 20 years, and I'm up to 22 books now. And I actually have three more going, in a way, simultaneously, um, uh, including this, um, the, the, the third installment of the book we're going to talk about tonight. Um, on the middle colonies, I'm working on the New England colonies. So... I'm, I'm, I'm keeping busy in retirement, just as they say. You know, I know a lot of people who stay busy in retirement, and I'm definitely one of them. I grew, I grew up in Maine, but raised my family here in Virginia. And like I say, um, living the dream in Williamsburg, Virginia. Mike, what made you want to write this book? This book, um, United in Independence, is really a companion book to um, 
uh, one that came out a couple years ago called March to Independence. And that book <laughs> was written um, to kind of explore the other colonies. So both of these books uh, explore the other colonies outside of Lexington, Concord, and Massachusetts. And the whole point is, you know, the whole point is to um, highlight what happened in the other colonies in the 18 months between Lexington and Concord and independence. And the reason I did that is because it occurred to me years ago, several years ago, that the way we teach in this country and the way um, most people even approach the revolution is you got Lexington and Concord, the shot heard around the world, the war starts, and then all the other colonies rally, rally to Massachusetts and get involved. I'm like, but, but I was at a, uh, we, we planned a reenactment here in Hampton, Virginia, about seven, many years ago. And it occurred to me after that battle that we did, that, it was, that that was the first fight in Virginia. And it was six months after Lexington and Concord. Now, Virginia troops, obviously, George Washington being the most prominent, were in the war. Same thing with Daniel Morgan and the riflemen. But Virginians hadn't fired a, a shot in anger at the British here in Virginia until late October 1775. So then first I learned about Virginia, and then I wanted to learn about the other colonies. So, the, so what, we're, what the book we're talking about tonight is about the middle colonies, um, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland. And now I know I've been, I've been slapped on the wrist by a couple people already about Maryland being put in the middle colonies instead of the southern colonies. That was as much a tactical decision just to kind of balance it out so I could have five colonies in the south because I also have East Florida, uh, East Florida in the southern colony book. And then I have five in the, um, in the middle colonies too. So that's why I wrote it. I simply wanted to highlight all the events that happened, all the important events and the people that happened in the individual colonies outside of New England or at least outside of Massachusetts. And then kind of explain why each colony comes to independence a little bit different from each other, but of course, in other ways, very much the same, you know, influenced by the bigger factors, but then each one has their own homegrown issues that they're dealing with. And that was a lot of fun to discover those. Mike, how would you describe the middle colonies before the revolution? What are they most known for? Yeah, they are very different. And that, in fact, um, what jumps out at, at me right off the bat in terms of what are they known for, they're diverse and they're unique. Um, when we, all, we always used to teach this, in, in school we would teach uh, the colonies, um, at least I did, and, and my colleagues in here in Virginia, and we'd, teach, we, we'd break them into three regions, the New England colonies, the middle colonies, and the southern colonies. And, um, and each region had a lot, of, a lot of similar characteristics. But frankly, even within the middle colonies, there's a lot of uniqueness. Um, you know, New York and New Jersey are, are, are very similar. It's really poor New Jersey. It's hard to kind of separate New Jersey. It's living in the shadow of both New York City and, and um, um, Philadelphia. Uh, but it basically is very similar. You know, it's a proprietary colony. It starts out as that. Um, Pennsylvania is still a proprietary colony, meaning it was land-granted to, to the Penn family. Um, and so you've got different religions, you've got different um, um, cultures, you know, the Dutch influence, the German influence, uh, the Dutch influence in New York, the German influence in um, Pennsylvania, the Swedish influence in Delaware. Um, the fact that Delaware is only three, three little co uh, counties, uh, 40,000 people in Delaware. 
um, and really tied to Pennsylvania so much so that although they have their own legislature, they share a governor, um, John Penn, at this time period. So, oh, and then there's Maryland. Don't forget Maryland, you know, the, the Catholic haven, we, we always used to say. Um, and they're really the most different of the, of the um, five middle colonies that we're talking about tonight. But, um, but uh, they, I mean, they have a lot more uh, connected with uh, the South, including, of course, their um, dependence on a cash crop, which is tobacco. And the fact that, I mean, you just look at the, uh, the demographic statistics, 33% of Maryland is made up of enslaved people, whereas uh, I, think, I think that number is much smaller. I know it gets much smaller in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. So big differences there. How did the middle colonies differ from one another um, in terms of character? Well, um, in terms now, the, the, my book is focused really on just eighteen months or so from from April seventy five until pretty much September of seventy six, and so I'm only focusing on like how they reacted. So that would be one area. Um, I, I mentioned some of the differences already. You know, three of the of the five um, colonies. That would be New York, New Jersey, and Maryland had royal governors appointed by by Britain. Um, Pennsylvania and Delaware had a proprietary governor, which is kind of in the family, the Penn family there. Um, I, I mentioned already the big uh, differences in, in economics and how they made a living. Um, you know, so so those those jump out at me. Those kind of differences, you know, economic and and of course the ethnic origins of them. I mean. Pennsylvania is an amazing colony when you think about it. Between the diversity of the people, then their religious differences, you know, the Quakers of Pennsylvania are really and strong a strong influence over that whole thing. Um, and of course, there's a lot of Quakerism in, in New Jersey too that I didn't realize uh, until I did the research here. So uh, in that way, I guess they're very very separate and different from each other. They just happen to share a, a similar kind of climate and locate geographic location, but I'd say they're they are quite different from each other in terms of within each other's boundaries. There, um, yeah, I wouldn't lump them all together I, as we do. We do lump the middle colonies all together, but boy, that's when I mentioned that they were unique, that's what I go back to. They're very unique. Have, have, they all have unique aspects to them. Mike, you write a lot about the effect of loyalism governing and affecting the politics of the region. Could you explain that? Yes, this was this was actually fascinating. To me, because um, I don't know about many of the listeners here, but I grew up um, exposed to the revolution in different ways, including on on television or in movies. And when I think of movies that portray what happened in this time period, you know, we used to actually show scenes from a, a month. The English teacher I taught with insisted that we show the movie 1776. I always rolled my eyes because I thought it was bad history, although. Um, um, David McCulloch says it's pretty darn good, yeah, and I saw him in an interview say it was pretty accurate. But you know the way um, the way Pennsylvania and New York are portrayed in it, uh, uh, basically very loyalist, very Tory leaning. In the in the John Adams miniseries, same thing. It seemed like it was Pennsylvania and New York and even South Carolina, very very loyalist and all that. But yet when when I start out the book um, after I do a brief introduction about 
each colony, their demographics, the number of people that are there, what they do for a living, the cities and all that. I talk about their reaction to the Lexington and Concord. And in that case, it was universal. It, I mean, that, that, the news of Lexington and Concord kind of swept south, right? Through New York, into New Jersey, all the way down to, uh, to East Florida eventually. And in each of the colonies, it was outrage and, and kind of um, um, chaos a little bit. There was, a, there was I mean, visual anger at what happened. I mean, large crowds gathered in New York City. Um, Philadelphia was described as an armed camp uh, and, and all that. And, and some of the delegates, the Second Continental Congress was meeting, and they, were, they, they wrote down how surprised they were to see Quakers, who, of course, are known for their pacifism, all militant and up in arms about what happened. So in that regard, there was a universal kind of like condemnation of what had happened up in Massachusetts. Um, as time went on, um, that the loyalism doesn't really seem to be much of a factor in any of the colonies at first, except New York, where I wouldn't even call it loyal, um, loyalism as much, because I think they all agreed that they needed to have their rights redressed. And, they, and for 1775, they all wanted a, um, um, a reconciliation. But that loyalism that we're talking about really pops up in 76 when we get closer and closer to independence. You know, the King's big speech in late October 75, which doesn't really reach here until January, basically, um, you know, threatens death to uh, the, to the leaders of the of this movement, this opposition. That was a that was a shocker. Um, of course, the loyalists probably applauded that. Um, then in May, uh, you've got the Congress basically urging the, the, each colony to form their own governments, and and that that was a trigger. That was really a trigger uh, in Delaware, especially because I was really surprised to see at one point that many. Many folks in Delaware rose up. I guess you call them loyalists. They rose up against the concept of independence. That's what I think really animated a lot of loyalists was this idea that, oh, my God, we're really going to become independent. They kind of laid low until it reached that point. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, no, no. And in Delaware, they, had to, they, they were able to suppress the loyalists there. Of course, in New York, that loyalism showed even stronger earlier because of the Provincial, no, the, the state legislature, I'm sorry, colonial legislature refused to endorse the first Continental Congress's actions. Um, so that was, that was, you know, kind of showing their, their sentiment early on. But they, they were not, that was not universal in New York. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of loyalists in New York, but there were also a lot of militants in New York, too. So, and those guys formed their own committees to rise up. So, Mike, what were the earliest events that mobilized the middle colonies toward war? Right. Um, well, obviously, I mentioned the, the, um, the Lexington and Concord um, news. That was right off the start. That was uh, a big factor. in it. I, I think the next thing, though, that, that just kind of jumps out at me is um, the British Navy. The British Navy. Okay, so we have to go back and think about the situation in that time period of 75, 76. And, you know, essentially... The British Army is almost solely in Boston uh, after Lexington and Concord. There is a 100-man contingent um, posted in, in New York City for a couple of months, and I want to talk about that at some point. But um, most of the contact that the colonies are going to have are with the British Navy. And as a result, you know, you have to remember, we're all English 
1775. These these are not Americans in the sense of a of an independent country yet. So when the British Navy asks for provisions from a from a, a town or a harbor, they they expect to get those provisions and they'll pay for them. But as time goes on, the British Navy that starts meeting resistance, and then their actions in response to that are what provoke a lot of irritation. It's uh, here in Virginia, I know, was um, plundering of sheep and stuff. Same thing up in the uh, in the um, New England colonies there. And um, well, I, I, I'm going to put a lot of out uh, in New Jersey as well. There was there were issues of plundering, and in in, in Delaware. Um, in New York City, again, this is what I found absolutely fascinating and which why I enjoy writing books like this because I learned so much. Uh, you had a, a situation where the British Navy, not only are they there, um, they're there to kind of try to keep order, but they're only, they're, their force only extends into the harbor, right, not onto the city. And one evening, um, a, a bunch of militia from New York City, uh, led by John Lamb, I believe, um, snuck into the battery, the little tip of Manhattan Island, and tried and started stealing some of the cannon that were there. Now there were loyalists in town that knew this was going to happen, and they had tipped off the uh, the um, HMS Asia, a 64-gun ship that was anchored in the harbor. And the captain of that ship had posted a small boat near, right near the shore, in the darkness because it was that night, to listen. And so when the, that crew heard the uh, militia moving the cannon, they fired a shot into the air to warn the ship. Right, and the ship's there kind of stop that from happening. Well, what happens next is some of the militia on the town fire at the boat in the dark, and they hit a sailor. And the boat, by the way, is racing back to the Asia. The captain of the Asia then fires three cannon into the, into the town, and, uh, and then what happens next is um, the town's all worked up, uh, and there's, there's the drums playing and all that, and um, the captain then decides to fire an entire broadside into the town. This is August 1775, late August, in New York City. So when I discovered all this, I was, like, I was quite surprised that there was fighting there in New York before there was fighting here in, in, the, in my colony here in Virginia. So that's the kind of thing. Again, the British Navy. And you'll see, you see incidents, similar incidents like that all over um, the colony. Mike, you write a great deal about the Canadian expedition. Uh, what happened there? How, what are your conclusions that you draw? Yes, now that again, another fascinating thing, and and you know, a reader might wonder why why does he spend a lot of time in the on a Canadian expedition if this is about the middle colonies? And the reason is because uh, the, so many soldiers from the middle colonies participated in it, and so um, the way the Canadian expedition goes down, it's almost actually it starts out almost humorously um, with a raid on Fort Ty. And most, a lot of people are, are probably familiar with that. That's the, um, the situation where after Lexington and Concord, you've got um, Benedict Arnold going to Massachusetts and then proposing an expedition to seize the weapons and, and ordnance at Fort Ty. And then the uh, Canadian, I mean, um, Connecticut officials have the same idea, and they, and they uh, hook up with um, um, Ethan Allen. <laughs> and so... Unknowingly, that not unaware that Massachusetts is thinking of the same thing, so they both all head on out to um, New York there to, to attack um, Fort Ty or to seize Fort Ty. I mean, it reminds me of a Monty Python skit, to be honest with you. You know, um, what happens is Alan 
has got some men. Arnold doesn't even have any men yet, but he finds out that Allen's about to do this and uh, to take the fort, and Arnold wants to be there and doesn't want Ethan Allen to do it, so he races and tries to take command, but of course no one's going to listen to him because he doesn't have any troops. Um, anyway, um, I digress. The, the, the seizure of the fort is quite humorous and important, but then Arnold uh, does end up in command when Allen, uh, Ethan Allen leaves, and then he pushes some troops all the way up Lake Champlain into Canada. Into, uh, they raid St. John's. And then, when he gets back from St. John's, he writes letters to Congress saying, you know, the, there's, there's a strong British presence in Canada, and uh, there are signs that they're coming after us. They're, they're coming down this way. So, by, and this, this just blew, blows me away, because by late June of 1775, with, before General Washington's even in Massachusetts to take command of, uh, of the Continental Army, Congress authorizes an expedition against Canada, right? So that's an offensive act. That's not defense. That's offensive. You know, we're going to go on the offense. And it was, it was kind of like a um, preemptive strike, I guess you'd call it, is what it was. Okay, so what happens next? The summer, over the summer, uh, General Phillips um, Schuyler, he's in charge of the uh, troops in New York, and he doesn't have enough resources to launch this, this expedition. He finally does, he, he, he pushes up a guy named, uh, I mean, General Richard Montgomery, an experienced, a former British officer, I believe, an experienced general, leads um, a force of mostly New Yorkers up um, into Canada. At the same time, General Washington decides he's going to send an expedition from his force through the woods of Maine to attack Quebec. So you have like this pincer movement going on, and the leader of that expedition is Benedict Arnold, all right? And so that's an epic march that I, I, I allude to because there were um, two companies of, of, of Pennsylvania riflemen um, in that force. Uh, and so they march up, and then you've got um, the, Pensil- I mean, the New Yorkers uh, with Montgomery. It all ends up at um, Montgomery captures St. John's. He captures um, Montreal. Um, but they kind of run out of gas, and they don't, they're not able to capture Quebec. In fact, Montgomery is killed in the attack on Quebec, and... Arnold is wounded in the leg. Okay, that's scene one. That's act one of this play, right? We've captured most. We've, we've taken away most of the British Redcoats. Um, we've got the British trapped in Quebec uh, and all that. And so there's still a good chance we can erase them from, um, from Canada. Then act two, the British strike back. The Empire strikes back. Um, what happens is we're, we're, uh, Congress is pumping more troops up there. They're sending new men from New Jersey and men from Pennsylvania now up there to reinforce the army. And we're talking thousands, like 6,000 men they're trying to, to build up to. But at the same time, these guys that are, that are already there are running low and lower and lower on provisions. It's a hard winter. And then uh, British reinforcements under General John Burgoyne come. And uh, next thing you know, we're moving backwards. And there's a fight uh, west of Montreal called um, the Cedars, uh, in which it's too complicated, complicated to get into, but we, we are decisively beaten there. And then we're, de- we're defeated even worse at um, Three Rivers. And uh, so pretty, before you know it, we're retreating all the way back to Lake Champlain. Okay? And so, again, for this book, the reason I focus on this is because first, the colonists were heavily in, um, focused on, on all this stuff, but also the number of middle colony men in the, under arms who participated in this expedition or in this attempt to, to take Canada, I thought was important. 
and that's what I wanted to do. Mike, we must talk about the fall of Long Island. How does that change things? Yeah. Okay. The Battle of Long Island, um, it was, it was again, fun to learn the details of this. I was aware of some of it, but um, I dug deeper into this. And right off the bat, that battle jumps out at me as like um, um, Warfare 101 lesson in attacking, right? It's, it's very simple. You, uh, if you're going to attack your enemy in a fixed position, you feign a frontal attack and you hit them on the flank or the rear, all right? And so it's, 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 it's not that hard or, or complicated. And unfortunately, the somewhat inexperienced, but I don't even know if it was inexperienced. He probably was aware of this. He just didn't know the terrain very well. General Washington, that is, um, he left his left flank just kind of hanging wide open on the heights, the Gowanus Heights, I believe. I may be mispronouncing that, but it's on Long Island. So, um, so sure enough, just as, as he was warned, he was warned by a Pennsylvania rifleman named uh, Colonel Edward Hand that you know, there's nobody on my left, and there's a gap here. Um, what was it? The Jamaica Pass, I think it was called. And, you know, the British can march right around. They're not that far away. We need more men. Well, Washington didn't have enough men. Remember, he's significantly outnumbered um, facing the British. He's, he's got less than 20,000 men. British have around 30,000 men uh, that have shown up over the summer. Uh, not, not all of them on Long Island in this battle, but still, he's got a lot. So uh, what happens is then, the other part of this battle that just jumps out at, at, at you is um, the details of it. It's a, it's a night march, gets um, G- uh, General Howe, basically is able to get around the flank, captures the five horsemen, American horsemen that are supposed to be standing watch, marches 10,000 troops basically behind the left wing of the American army. Poor Colonel Hand is, uh, is on the end. It kind of reminds me a little bit about Pearl Harbor, you know, the warnings we had. You know, this poor guy had tried to warn his superiors to be, be, be weary of it and uh, leery of it. And yet he's the one that, and, and his men are the one that pay the price because they get hung out to dry in a sense. But so does the middle part with general Sullivan, general Sullivan, John Sullivan from New Hampshire is going to get captured. And the only thing, the only area that kind of did all right was the right wing of the, of the um, American line. And that was uh, general Sterling. And, the only reason he did so well is because the British weren't that aggressive. They were kind of holding back until the trap, you know, the vice closed on them. But he, that being said, the Americans there did fight hard. And, of course, there's a whole book about the immortals, you know, Maryland immortals. Um, it was a scene of amazing bravery between, uh, from the Maryland troops and the Delaware troops who got thrown into this fight literally within hours of it, just, just hours before uh, they, were, they, they were posted on Long Island. In fact, their, their, their unit commanders weren't even there. It was like their majors. You know, a regiment has a colonel, lieutenant colonel. I believe they were both uh, commanded by majors in this fight. Um, but in, in any case, yeah, it's just a heroic fight, um, but also a huge loss. And the impact of Long Island was shocking to the colonies you know, and to Washington himself. Mike, how did support for the war change as the war went on? Well, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about um, when the war breaks out at first, there was a surprising agreement that we must stand up and resist. Um, and so, you know, and, and the middle colonies right off the bat, I mean, Pennsylvania sends eight companies of riflemen 
um, in June north to join the uh, Washington and Boston. Virginia sends two, Maryland sends two. That was at the um, that was at the uh, urging of the Congress there. Um, so there was there was a willingness kind of to fight. And so what I when I, when I look at this, um, the disagreements that happened over the war wasn't so much about what was the goal. The goal was at first reconciliation before independence. It was about how we were going to get that. And most of the colonists were willing to stand up and fight for that. Um, so support for the war actually diminishes, I think, the first time when there's serious talk about independence. That's when you all of a sudden see people like in Delaware uh, say, whoa, wait a minute, wait, wait. I was willing to support f fighting for our rights and, uh, with the understanding that we were going to all get back together again uh, when this was all done. We're going to stand up and fight for ourselves. But I'm not willing to fight for independence. And so you see uh, a resistance in, in Delaware, a little bit in New York as well. Um, I think that's when you first see it. And then, of course, you see it again, a resistance to the war when things start going badly for us. Because remember, things went pretty good in 75 for us all the way through, um, you know, Lexington and Concord, sure, we lost the battle, but we felt pretty darn good. Bunker Hill, we lost the battle, but we felt pretty darn good. Uh, we had them trapped uh, in Boston, and we pushed them out of Boston. So we were feeling very good about that. Yes, the Canadian um, expedition ended up turning out badly for us, but that's, that's also when you start to see people start to think the war, hmm, maybe this is a mistake. You know, that's also when there's a lot of independence, the situation in Canada is turning, and then, bam, that shoe drops at Long Island. And then we lose New York. And then we get chased out, uh, you know, the Battle of Fort Washington, and we get chased across New Jersey. Then it evaporates. And poor General Washington writes, and some of his troops write about how they can't find anybody to help out anymore. You know, the militia's not turning out anymore. But that's because of the setbacks of the war post um, Long Island. So, you know, at first, so I think the, the, the combination of those, what's, what is this about in the first half? It's what are we really fighting for? I'm okay with standing up for our rights, but I'm not ready to fight for independence. That created some resistance. And then when there were setbacks that happened, then all of a sudden there was a lot. And that's why Trenton is so important when you know, Washington's able to turn, turn the tables. But I don't talk about Trenton in this book because that's beyond the scope of the book. Mike, we have to ask ourselves this every time we take on a new writing project. How do you think this book helps us understand the revolutionary era better? Well... I'll go back to, uh, to what we talked about earlier, and like how revolution is taught. Um, and like so much, you know, we are a united country now. You and I live in a united, everybody lives, we live in a united uh, country. I know, you know, I know what you're thinking. Somebody just rolled their eyes and was united. Have you seen the news lately? But I mean, we all still think, we may disagree on politics, but we think of ourselves as, like, as, an, as an American nation. And of course, they didn't. They didn't think of themselves that. They were, they were Virginians and Pennsylvanians and all that. And I know Patrick Henry and others said, I am now an American. But it's easy to say that uh, for propaganda or whatever, rhetoric. And, you know, the, and, and they, I'm telling you, they didn't actually feel it that way. And so my point is, we teach the revolution as if, as if it was one big event and everybody was all on the same page. And I believe it was much more a local we've got to look more at the local stuff because frankly, 
your typical colonist living in whatever colony they're in is much more impacted by his local uh, local events than he than he is or she is the national events, you know. Um, and so I think those have often been overlooked or forgotten, uh, and that's why I wanted to focus on, you know, what happened in New York, what happened in Pennsylvania, what were they actually doing? And sometimes, I've got to be honest with you, sometimes you find a, a colony like, like New Jersey was kind of a struggle because there was no big battle in New Jersey in this time period. They're coming. I know New Jersey is the crossroads of the revolution, so the fighting is coming and, and the big events are coming. But aside from, you know, arresting um, the governor, Governor Franklin, Ben Franklin's son, and um, there, there's a, a little bit, a couple of engagements with the British Navy, there's not a lot of drama there the way there is in New York and there is even in, um, in Delaware and Pennsylvania. So, um, but I wanted to just, I wanted to be thorough and look, you know, kind of look at the politics of each colony and look at the, look for whatever important events happen in each colony. And so... To tell them a more complete story. I bet you that's, yeah, that's the, probably the best way to say it. To tell a more complete story. Mike Sasir, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying... So long.